We are in a continuing series through the Gospel of Mark, and the series is called Expectancy. And the desire is that any time we approach God's Word, that there is an expectancy in our hearts to not only walk away with more information and more understanding, but that we would walk away with insight only given by the Holy Spirit. We would walk away with an encounter with Jesus, and that we'd walk away transformed. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, That God's Word is alive, that it's active, and that it exposes and deals with our hearts and our motives and our thoughts. That means that when you and I spend time in God's Word, much like we're going to do this morning, or when at home you spend time, you open God's Word, you open the Scripture and begin to read, is that you're not merely reading through a story, you're not merely reading through a book like other books, but rather that the Word that you're reading through the Holy Spirit is alive and desires to speak to you, desires to challenge you, desires to transform your life, and that it's allowing your thoughts and your hearts to be exposed to God's heart and God's thoughts. It says that he will guide us, his word can transform us, his word can renew us as we anchor our heart and our thoughts upon him. So this morning as we look through God's word together and we'll spend time just reading through a story in the gospel of Mark, explaining some things, and then I'll end by giving you a few ways that we can take uh, what we've looked at and apply. Look in the moment, listen and say, how, how could the Holy Spirit be speaking to you in that moment? And how, does he, how is he challenging you in that moment? I've mentioned in the past that our hearts are always responding in some way to every encounter with God's Word. That in every way, every time your heart is exposed to God's Word, that your heart's responding in some way. Either it it hardens or it softens. That in, in some way our hearts are always responding. And so this morning we do want to spend time in God's Word and pray that the Holy Spirit would have His way and work in our lives. So let's look together in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. And the story we're about to read together really is a rather incredible story. Uh, the, the previous one last week, if you were with us, you'll remember we looked at how Jesus calmed the storm. He suggested that He and His disciples head across the lake at night. And in the middle of the lake, they hit a storm and how Jesus calms the storm and ultimately deals with their faith or their lack of faith. And so as we've looked at how Jesus has the authority over storms in life, now we begin to look at how Jesus has authority over the supernatural. Look look with me in Mark chapter 5, and we're going to read a lengthy passage together, and then we'll talk about it some. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. It says, they went across the lake to the region of Gerasthenes, or if you read it in, in Matthew's account, it says the region of Gadara, and both would actually be true because this region they're going to is a, a region with about 10 cities together, kind of a metropolis or decapolis area that they're together, and, and so they're both are right that they're going to this region together. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man living in the, this man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons with his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his feet in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. 
The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told all about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. In the story we've just read, we have Jesus arriving in the region, arriving in this area, and, and just an incredible encounter that we've read. But there's one detail that, I, that is not so much in this story. It's in the story that took place just before it, something that we looked at last week. And if you'll remember last week, we talked about Jesus had been on one side of the lake, and this, this lake is about 13 miles wide, seven mile, 13 miles long, about seven miles wide. And there's this crowd that can't get enough of Jesus. So much so, Jesus is absolutely exhausted. And really, the, the impression we get is the disciples get Jesus and get him into the boat. And Jesus suggests they go across the other side of the lake. But an important detail is that it's night. So they go out into the night. They go across the lake in the night. They encounter the storm, as we've talked about. And I want you to picture every single detail that we've just read in this story, encountering this demoniac, encountering this man who is screaming at the top of his lungs, encountering him at night. Not only encountering him at night, but encountering him among the tombs, encountering him among the dead. At most, it would have been the early morning hours, and Jesus and his disciples are there. It says, when Jesus arrives, this man possessed by a demon comes to him. And in Matthew's account, if you read through the Gospels, each of the four Gospels gives us a different perspective on Jesus and his authority. And in Matthew's account, it tells us there's two men. The difference is not that there's, that there's one or two. The difference is merely that Mark focuses on the one who does the talking, the one who does the speaking. But he comes rushing to Jesus and his disciples. And there's one more detail that's from the previous story that I want you to consider as well. Not only is it night, and not only are they encountering this insane, screaming, demon-possessed man, but in the previous story, it tells us Jesus is sitting at the back of the boat. He was asleep at the back of the boat. He's sitting at the back of the boat. So any boat, when it arrives on a shore, typically arrives the front first. The disciples are at the front, Jesus is at the back, and this madman comes screaming and running at them. Have you ever thought about what do the disciples do? I mean, they're standing on the shore at night, and the, through the darkness, there's this screaming man come rushing at them, and then Jesus gets out of the boat and begins to deal with the man. I wonder what their reaction was in the moment. I wonder what your reaction would be. I wonder what my reaction would be in that moment. I'm sure they were startled, or if not at the very least, completely terrified. But there's a few things about this man that we need to consider to better understand the story and to get a picture of what exactly is taking place. And a few things we need to consider, most of them we'll look at in just a few moments, but one that's key is found in verse 2. 
that tells us that this man is possessed by a demon. He's possessed by an impure spirit. He's not just mentally insane. He's possessed. He's driven by this demonic activity that has its hold upon his life. And anytime the scriptures speak of an individual who has been possessed by a demon, the wording that the author, the original writer uses makes it very clear. It's not that this man has the demon. It's that this demon has him. That he's in its grasp, he's in its hold, that it is, he is held captive. And Mark puts this detail at the very beginning to make it very clear to every single reader that every single issue this man has is not rooted in a natural problem, it's rooted in a supernatural problem. Every single issue that this man is dealing with is rooted in this impure spirit's possession of his life. It has completely destroyed his way of life. If he had a family, it has separated from his family. It has caused him to live away from society. It has just completely destroyed his life. When it comes to demonic possession, our society has done a good job as a civilized society to try to explain it away and make many think that it's not real, that it's nothing more than a mental disorder or some other medical issue that can be treated with the right amount of treatment and medicine. Or at most, it will make any type of demonic activity something of Hollywood, something of entertainment, and something that is more that we draw entertainment from, but not a reality in life. But the Bible makes it very clear that you and I face a very real foe and a very real enemy who has one purpose in life, and that is to destroy the work of Christ in you, to destroy you, to destroy your family, to destroy your marriage, to destroy any God-given grace and blessing upon your life and to ultimately separate you from Christ. That his very nature is to steal, to kill, to kill and destroy. That is why in 1 John chapter 2, it says that we are not to love anything of this world or the ways of this world because the ways of this world and anything in this world is a product of the enemy. It's a product of the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age, and his purpose is to destroy and undermine the work of Christ in your life. We should be wise to understand and recognize that the Bible teaches that regardless of what Hollywood and entertainment might try to picture, when, it come, when given the opportunity, demons will possess individuals, demons will destroy individuals, that they are fallen angels who have rebelled against God, and that they are very real spiritual beings under Satan's influence. It's very common in many countries, while in, while in our own country, in a very civilized society and culture, that it's very common to not necessarily see things. There's countries you'll go in, and, and when you walk into the country, that it's very common and very expected that you'll see supernatural activity. I've shared before of different times in Haiti, and just being in, in Haiti, the atmosphere there, the spiritual atmosphere there is palpable. And you can sense it. You can see it. That It's a reality. It's accepted. It's acknowledged. The Bible makes it very clear that this man's condition, because of this possession in his life, that this man's condition is absolutely hopeless. There's a number of details that, that help us see this, that Mark gives us the picture. First, it makes it clear in verse 2, he's living among the tombs. To the Jew, to live among the tombs, to be around the dead or among the dead would, be, would immediately defile them and make them unclean. And he has made his home among the dead when we think of a, a cemetery and a, a graveyard in Jesus' day, it would not be like we see today where you, you drive down the road and you'll see a nicely landscaped lawn and grass and you'll see nice little headstones with nice names carved on them. 
In Jesus' day, the, the tombs were hills and caves, car, caves and, and reeds carved out of the hills, and it ultimately families would use the entire cave and would bring the dead body in, and when the dead body had decayed enough, it would ultimately, the bones would be collected and put into an ossuary, put into a box that would be there. And so ultimately tombs, these caves, were, would hold ultimately families and multiple family members. And so the fact that he was living among the dead doesn't just mean he was roaming among the tombstones. He was literally living in the caves with the dead bodies. Appears that humanity had given up on him and he was considered a social outcast to everyone. The next thing we see that helps us understand the hopelessness of his condition is in verse 4. There were no human solutions that could help him. There were absolutely no human solutions that could help him. It said that he had often been chained head, hand, and foot. And it said that when he was chained hand and foot, he would literally tear the bondages like paper. It says that no one could subdue him. It didn't matter how strong or how many of the men were sent to subdue him. No one could subdue him. There was nothing that they could do to stop him. It says verse 5 tells us that night and day he would cry out and he would cut himself. Night and day indicating there was not a place, not a moment of his life that he could find peace. It didn't matter what time of day. There was no rest inwardly. There was no rest outwardly. There was torment and bondage. He would roam around screaming. The story tells us he's a cutter. He would cut himself. He, would, he was mad. He was untamed. He was unrestrained. He would self-inflicted wounds that he was constantly cutting himself and screaming. And Matthew gives us an interesting account. It tells us that his rage was so great that no one would pass his way. No one wanted to go near him. They could hear him from a distance and no one wanted to encounter him. I often wonder if perhaps he had even taken lives in the midst of the rage and them trying to restrain and to restrict him. And it's interesting that no one wants to go his way. Jesus is in a community that travels by foot, travels by boat. I think boat would be a main way of transportation if possible. And Jesus arrives to this region by boat. And so apparently this man is in an area that is, would probably be a main area of traffic, a main area of thoroughfare. And yet it says no one wants to go there. They would rather deal with the inconvenience of traveling farther out of their way and spending more time than having to possibly encounter this demoniac. And all of these issues come from his, his demonic possession. In fact, in Mark chapter 5, it gives us a number of details that give us insight into understanding his possession. Verse 5 says that he has superhuman strength that others couldn't restrain him. We've talked about that. That he could shatter the, tra- the chains and that his was a spiritual issue that could not be solved by human uh, solutions. That the demonic presence, secondly, the demonic presence had so engulfed this man and so possessed him that when Jesus asks this man his name, he doesn't even have a personality to answer. When Jesus asks this man his name, the, the name that's given is Legion, that he has no personality. And we'll look at the name Legion in just a moment. But it's the demon that answers. It's taken such control. I can remember a number of years ago, we, my wife and I were youth pastors at a church. And as we were there, we would put on an event that we would call Youth Week. And it would be very similar to, to Kids Fest. It would start on a Sunday night and run usually through a Thursday night. And we would have a guest speaker come in, a, just a great time of worship. And, and it was focused right in back to school. It was focused on encouraging students to invite friends, to bring their friends to come and to be there. 
And we'd have a guest speaker who would spend time focusing on salvation, focusing on the importance of Christ, focusing on the baptism in the Holy Spirit for our students, a number of things. And there was a young man that I knew had been an influence on a different young man in our, con- in our, in our youth group who really the, the young man from our youth group, I would watch and how he would draw close to God and then I would see him struggle and fall away. And it was the influence of this other young man in his life. And he invited this young man to the youth service to be there that night. And the young man came in just dressed in black, very, very dark. His just appearance was very dark. And as the worship time happened and the, the speaker continued to speak, at the end of service, the speaker gave an altar response for people to come. And this young man responded. And he goes and he's kneeling in the altar. But as I'm watching him, at first I'm thinking, God, thank you. Thank you that this man's responding, wanting to give his life to you. But as the, as the altar time continued and the worship continued and, and really just the Holy Spirit was working, this young man I began to watch and his demeanor and his posture was very different than all the others who were responding. Where others were kneeling in worship and kneeling in response, this young man was kneeling on the floor and he had his arms wrapped around him as tight as possible and as he was kneeling, he was rocking back and forth and he was growling. And as he was rocking back and forth and he was growling, I went over to him and what I heard him saying is, I won't let him go, I won't let him go, I won't let him go. We gathered the youth leaders and began to pray over him and at some point they were able to to move him to another part of the the building and continue to pray with him and continue to minister to him. And and ultimately as we prayed over that young man and, and he was set free from a demonic possession in his life, we encouraged him and reminded him the importance of of keeping your center upon Jesus and recognizing the things that would detract you from your focus and ultimately give the enemy access into your life. But in that moment, I remember that it was not his voice, it was not his demeanor, it was not his posture that was there, that his personality had been taken over. When Jesus asks this, asks this man his name and the demon gives the name, he says the name is Legion. He says, for we are many. Legion is a military word for ranking, and it speaks to, of, of a Roman group of soldiers that speaks from anywhere from 1,000 to 6,000. When Jesus drives these demons out of this man, we see that they, they take possession of 2,000 pigs. So we, whether it be 1,000, 2,000, or 6,000, it's very clear that there's a very strong stronghold in this man's life, a very strong demonic presence. And I think the strength of this man's demonic bondage comes from the fact that he is engaged in a number of repetitive defiling activities. Some would look at the repetitive defiling activities in his life and would look at them and say, well, are they the, are they the product of the possession? Are they, the, are they what opened his life to, to the possession? And I would say probably a combination of both. But a few of the defiling activities that he, repetitive defiling activities, he lived among the tombs, we've talked about that. He lived among the tombs. He lived among the dead. Secondly, in Luke chapter 8, it tells us that he was naked frequently in public. The Bible makes it very clear that nakedness outside of marriage is a perversion. It's a distortion of God's design. And we see that this man was, was repetitively naked in public. And then thirdly, it says many experts really believe that the term impure spirit would speak to the fact that he was engaged in a number of open, perverse sexual activities that he was continually engaged in a number of defiling activities. And not only was this demonic presence in his life set on defiling him, its ultimate purpose was set on destroying him. We've already stated his self-harming and his cutting, but if you'll notice, when Jesus gives the demons permission to enter the pigs, when he's driving them out, they immediately destroy the pigs. Their nature is destruction. Their nature is to destroy 
Another fact that I find incredibly interesting that I think contributes to all of these details that we've talked about is in, in verse 10. When Jesus confronts this demon and ultimately casts it out, and we'll look at that in just a moment in, in greater detail, it says this demonic presence begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. It said, don't send us from this area. They didn't want to leave the region because they were attracted to it. There are certain things, the Bible makes it very clear, there are certain regions, certain things that are attractive to the demonic based on the activity that goes, that goes there. Based on what's happening there is attractive, apparently, to these demonic forces, and they, they beg Jesus not to have them lead the area. You might say, how can you arrive at that? Well, we're talking about a Jewish community, and it has a herd of over 2,000 pigs. That alone tells us that something abnormal, something disobedient is taking place in that area as they're not living in obedience with God's Word. That these demon, this demonic presence does not want to leave the area. And Jesus, keeping in mind with the pigs, Jesus had not yet declared all foods unclean, are clean. So he had not really yet declared for pigs to be eaten. And so this is a, an act of disobedience. We can see this, again, contributing to the fact of this man's possession. But as Mark shows that there is no demonic or satan, satanic power that can stand against the power and the authority of Jesus. The Bible tells us, the story tells us that as soon as Jesus was approaching, this demoniac saw Jesus, this demon saw Jesus approaching from a distance and it ran, came running and screaming and fell at the feet of Jesus. Earlier in Jesus' calming the storm, the story we looked at last week, one of the things that we mentioned is in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus calms this storm, the words that he uses to calm the storm some, it's the same words that he'll use to drive out demons and to confront demonic presence. And some suggest that that storm was demonically induced. If that's the case, I'm not saying it was, I'm not saying it wasn't. But if that was the case, then those demonic pres- that demonic presence in that region had been put on notice that Jesus was there and this, this man with this demon in him was waiting for Jesus to come and was waiting for Jesus to arrive there. But Mark makes it absolutely clear that as this man comes and falls before Jesus and begins to speak, he he says to Jesus, he says, why are you bothering us? There's absolutely nothing compatible between us and you. There's absolutely nothing compatible in our nature. There's nothing consistent. Why are you bothering us? Why are you here? And then he begins to ask Jesus, he says, don't throw us into the abyss. Don't cast us into the abyss. And the abyss is something when you look in Scripture, you'll learn more about later. It's actually from Scripture that came after this moment that we begin to learn about the abyss in Jude and in Second Peter chapter 4. And what those passages tell us is the abyss is a place, it's almost like a maximum security for, for demons that have overstepped those supernatural boundaries that have been set up on them. It tells us in Genesis, from Genesis chapter 6 that some of, those, some of those demons from that place are in, currently in holding. But it also tells us this. Revelations tells us that there's going to come a time in human history when the abyss is going to be opened and certain ones will be released. And that just makes, it, makes you and I be all the more aware of the importance of keeping Christ first and center in our lives in all times. And Jesus makes it clear to, this, to these demons that in that moment, that time of judgment had not come, that final judgment had not come, but rather that he was there to bring freedom and life into this man. And so Jesus commands this demon, and just like the storm pre- previously, that immediately there's calm. Immediately the, the storm in this man's life ends. There is such a radical change in his life and the peace that Jesus brings in that moment that 
It says when the townspeople arrive and they're concerned over their pigs, they're concerned over their investment, they're concerned over how they might be impacted financially. It says that they can't help but notice this man is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That in a matter of a moment, what all the townspeople could not do with their chains and their, and their muscle and their wisdom and all those moments of what they could not do, Jesus, in a matter of moments, in his words, brings absolute peace and absolute freedom into the life of this man. But what's interesting is the story doesn't just end with this man's freedom. It ends with an incredibly sad response from the town. It says that with this group in the town, they come to Jesus and they're amazed at what he's done. But then they ask Jesus, they plead with him to leave the region. On one side of the lake, we have a group of people who can't get enough of Jesus. And on this side of the lake, we have a group who, who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Some would suggest they're more concerned about their financial gain and their financial loss than this man's freedom and this man's soul. But I think of all the miracles in that moment that are lost because these people want nothing to do with Jesus and ask him to leave. So Jesus, Jesus departs. This man asks to join Jesus, asks to be one of his disciples. And Jesus says, instead, stay. Stay and begin to tell others of the power of what I've done in your life. And we see that he does that. And he goes and he continues to repeat again and again of the power and the life that Jesus brings in his life. And she might look at that story and, and read it. And of course, maybe there's things you hadn't heard of the story before, but you read that story and, and we think, well, how does that apply into my life? How does that impact my life? What can I take and walk away from far more than just head knowledge? So I want to give you, I want to give you four things, four ways that you can take that from the story we've just read and what we can find application in our own lives. The first one is this. Demonic forces are real and fixed on destruction. You might be here this morning, whether you're a guest or part of the church family, and you might say, wow, there's a, a lot of attention given to, to uh, the enemy this morning. And simply pointing out what the Bible is telling us and making us clear that we have a very real enemy. Part of going through the gospel of Mark verse by verse forces us to look at passages and topics and things that would be easily moved around. But just as in the story, their focus is to destroy, the same holds true in your life. It's part of their nature. In John 10.10, Jesus makes it clear that the enemy is bent on destruction and that he will use any and every influence and opportunity to gain a foothold in your life, to gain a foothold in your family, to gain an influence in your life, to gain an influence in your thought life. He knows his time is limited and his, he is set on destruction. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that the enemy knows his time is short. He knows his time is limited. And so it says that he moves with a fury. He moves with an intensity. And that would mean for you and I that are here this morning, if he knows that his time is limited and his nature is destruction, that every parent and every person here should be mindful as to what you allow your, into your life and what you allow to influence your family. I would encourage our college students as you're moving back into the dorms and reconnecting in relationships and, and just reconnecting with, with State College. Examine your life. Examine the habits that you bring with you. Examine the habits that you pick up in returning back to state college. What are they influencing? What does it give influence to into your life? And that goes for every parent, every student here. What are you giving influence and permission to influence in your life and in your home? 
We looked at this in greater detail back at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, but we should be very wise and very discerning as to what we allow in our home. While they have no true and lasting power with Satan and his demons, he will do everything that he can to destroy the work of Jesus in you and to diminish the power and testimony of Jesus through you. It's far more than just a story. It's reality that the enemy wants to destroy you and he wants to destroy your testimony. Secondly, Jesus' power and authority are absolute. Jesus' power and authority are absolute. When we, when we sing songs or we read in Scripture where we declare that Jesus is the King of kings or we say, Jesus, you are the Lord of lords, those aren't just phrases out of Scripture. Those are declarations of his absolute authority and his absolute power. That means there is absolutely nothing that is greater or more powerful than Jesus Christ in your life. I've shared with you uh, five life declarations in the past that I live by and I've shared with my family often And the first one at the very top of the list is that nothing will rule my life but Jesus. Nothing will rule my life but Jesus. And that is because Jesus is the absolute and final authority in all things. That his power is absolute. That for every Christian here, the power of Jesus Christ is without limit and without rival in your life. The enemy will do many things to try to get you to forget the authority and the power of Jesus Christ in your life through his Holy Spirit. And in those moments, I would encourage you to counter one of those thoughts and those doubts with the word and the truth of God's word. To be reminded that his authority is absolute. That means that regardless of what the devil or his demonic forces may try to throw at you, that Jesus is stronger. That he is far stronger than anything you will face in any, any addiction, any bondage that may come your way. He is stronger than any bondage or addiction a family member may be dealing with. That Jesus' power and authority are absolute. That means that since Jesus is the final authority and I belong to him, that there is absolutely in this life or the next that I need to fear. That if Jesus is the final authority and you belong to him, then there is absolutely nothing in this life or the next life that you need to fear. And that is something you may need to remind yourself of and tell yourself of. My life belongs to Jesus. And because my life belongs to Jesus and he is the final authority, there is absolutely nothing in this life that I need to fear. There is absolutely nothing in the next life that I need to fear. His power is over the demonic. His power is over all moments. His power is over all sickness. His power is over all natural circumstances. His power is over all death. He is the sustainer and the creator of all things. His power is absolute. You'll see behind me that we have these, these banners and with each series we'll put these, we'll hang these banners up and oftentimes there'll be a verse that will hang there and just It's a part of the series throughout. And one of the series that we did, I believe about two years ago, we did a series called Supernatural and just understanding the power of the Holy Spirit in us and, and who we are in Christ and, and recognizing the enemy wants to disarm and, and to get us to forget that. And on the banners that we had had on the walls, we had a few different verses. One of them is, is Ephesians 6.10. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Another one is 1 John 4.4. 4. It says, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Another one is Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And I remember we were just as a church, we were walking through just a challenging season. And I remember I would stand there 
at my seat and we're in worship and I would read those banners on the wall and it literally was as if God's truth and God's word was just speaking to me, reminding me of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ in all things. And so at the end of that series, I took those banners and I actually have them hanging in my office. If you've ever been in my office, I have those verses there. And every morning before I come in, I read those verses and I'm reminded of them, reminded of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Those are verses that I've had all of my children memorize. That when they go out to, to school in the morning, they go out into their day, we'll quote those verses and be reminded of 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And sometimes we'll hear the verses, we'll hear the passages, we'll, we'll read them in Scripture, and we'll leave it as something in Scripture. And we fail to make it personal and realize, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. There is absolutely nothing that I can face or will face in this day that can separate me from his power, his authority, his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, his, his joy, his peace, his sustaining power, his presence, in anything and everything you need. Jesus is everything you need. And he is with you in every moment as a follower of Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus' power absolute, a third thing to keep in mind is that Jesus is willing to deal, rather, Jesus Jesus' presence is powerful and personal. I got backwards in my notes. Jesus' presence is powerful and personal. Not only is his power and authority absolute, but his power is presence and personal. That is personal in your life. It's applicable in your life. Not just the story in Scripture. Not just in someone else's story. Not just someone else's life, but in your life that he can make a difference in you right now. He can give you peace right now. He can give you freedom right now. He can give you joy right now. That's applicable into your life right now. His power is personal and powerful in your life right now. I was talking recently with, with someone who was struggling with doubt and anxiety and negative thoughts and just really the, the enemy just bombarding their mind with questions of salvation and doubt and a number of things. And as I was sitting and I was talking with them and I began to share with them much of what I've been sharing with you, the importance of, of countering the lies of the enemy with the truth of God. And just encouraging them to counter everything the enemy says with the truth of God. Someone told me early on in ministry, they said, don't believe the devil even when he's telling the truth. Don't believe the devil even when he's telling the truth. And when these thoughts were coming, I encouraged them and I said, do, do the thoughts leave you hopeless or do they leave you hopeful? And if they leave you hopeless, then that should tell you the source of where those thoughts came from. If they leave you filled with hope, then that is, that those are coming from the Holy Spirit in you. If they are leaving you hopeless and despair and, and fearful and anxious, then those are not coming from God then those are coming from the enemy trying to whisper doubt and destruction into your life. And so as I was talking with that person, I began to, to quote to them many of the verses that I've memorized, some of the verses I shared with you this morning. And I encouraged them. I said, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. And I said, I encourage you to say it. And they said it. And I said, say it again. And they said it. And I say it again. Say it with authority. Say it with power. Say it with, with the reality that's applicable into your life. And they said it again, a number of verses that we just continue to go through together. And at the end of those verses, I began to tell them, I said, I want you to say this, Jesus is my hope. And they said, Jesus is my hope. I said, say it again, but say it, say it with belief. Jesus is my hope. 
And they said, Jesus is my hope. I said, Jesus is my joy. So Jesus is my joy. Jesus gives me peace. Jesus gives me peace. Jesus gives me comfort. Jesus gives me comfort. My heavenly father is a good father who loves me. And they say it again, just continue to combat every single lie that the enemy continued to throw at them again and again and again. And I encourage them. I said, make every time the enemy begins to bring doubt into your mind or tries to influence your thought life or anything that would be impure or opposite of who Jesus is, that in those moments to combat every lie and deception, not with our own solutions, but with the power and presence of Jesus Christ. And then the last thing, I think the last application that Jesus is willing to deal with issues that we would rather be left alone. Jesus is willing to deal with issues that we would rather be left alone. In the story we read, his presence dealt with, he, in the story we read, his presence dealt with a matter of issues. Some the townspeople didn't mind him dealing with, and some I think they would have minded him leaving alone. He dealt with their demoniac and he dealt with their pigs. I'm sure that they didn't mind him dealing with their demoniac. I would imagine they didn't want him messing with their pigs. And I would encourage you, as you respond to the presence of Jesus Christ in your life, don't be surprised if his work involves messing with your pigs. Messing with those little areas of disobedience or those things that we want to hold on to that are not consistent with the nature and person of Jesus Christ in your life. And when he does... Our best response is to be quick, was, was with quick obedience, to respond, to be obedient, to give it to Jesus. And if he's identified it in your life as something that's not meant for you, then that would mean that either it's not consistent with his nature or he has something far greater in store for you that you shouldn't be wasting your time with that in the first place. The God's desire for every life here and for every person here is hope and joy and freedom and peace. And that only comes as our hearts are open and responsive to the Holy Spirit working again and again and bringing His nature into our lives and freeing us from who we've been and freeing us from who the world tells us we should be.